0: 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Peter writes, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have not tasted the kindness of the Lord. On May 1940, Nazi Germany were advancing slowly and successfully taking over Europe. The Allies were losing ground and they had to retreat and largely was because of the advancements of the German army. They had these... Tanks that were very mobile and very effective in terms of pushing back the Allies. The Nazis seemed like they were going to win all of Europe because they cornered around 400,000 Allied soldiers on this beach resort known as Dunkirk. The Allies were concerned at this point. Nazi Germany has taken over Poland and Denmark and Norway, and they were only weeks away from taking France altogether. And what made this difficult for the Allied soldiers to retreat from this beach resort was that there were really shallow waters. Because of the shallowness of the water, it was impossible for for Allies to have large rescue vessels to get onto the land to pick up the soldiers. The Allies were desperate, and it was said that even on a clear day, they were able to see where they wanted to go. If the Nazis got to them, they would have lost tens of thousands of soldiers, and history would have played out really different. Prime Minister Winston Churchill at the time, who was only a prime minister for a few weeks, spoke to the people, and he had this operation called Operation Dynamo. And it's a call for all the civilians there to take and use their personal shipping vessels, whether it's a fishing boat or a yacht or whatever vehicles they have, to go to this island or to this resort to pick up the soldiers to bring them back to safety. Operation Dynamo was a rescue mission that required all of the civilians to go and try to help the soldiers that were stuck on the beach. They knew that if they were able to get to the soldiers, if they were able to rescue them, then they will have a chance to win the war, that the soldiers will have an opportunity to win and fight, or fight and win another day. The allies and the citizens understood that if they did not do this, they would lose everything, and that they needed this operation to succeed. They needed to win this battle in order to have a chance to win the war. And I wonder if this is how you view your own sin. If you think of sin in this serious term, then there's in our life as Christians, the Bible often describes our walk with the Lord, our spiritual life in war terms. I read from Ephesians chapter 6 in our opening prayer about the armor of God. And Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight. And these are all designed to make us think and to, be, and to take sin seriously, to see the threats of sin and how if we allow sin to, to, be, to, to dwell in us, that it will make us lose the fight or lose the war when it comes to our spiritual life. Do you see the need to have victory over sin as something that is a dire situation? If you think about your spiritual life Sometimes you cannot get to where you want to go, which is spiritual maturity, because of sin that is in your life. And for this text in particular, this is speaking about the thing that hinders us from desiring and knowing and longing for the pure milk of God's Word. In order for you to get there, you need to let go of the sin in your life. To put it in military terms, if you want to reach the base of Scripture, you need to escape the shores of sin. If you want to reach the base of Scripture, you need to escape the shores of sin. for you can long for that spiritual milk that you need, you need to clear out and clean out the sin that is in your life. Sin is incompatible with spiritual growth. Sin is incompatible with spiritual maturity. And you need to clean out the sin in your life if you want to get to enjoy the Word of God. These sins that are listed, it seems... Like, they're not as bad. And relatively speaking, it may not be that way. But Peter's point is that even the smallest sin, in and of itself, can damage your walk. If you have any type of pet sin in your life, or any respectable respectable sin in your mind, these are things that will keep you from the Lord. These are things that will keep you from growing in Christ-likeness. Before you can long for the spiritual food that is Scripture, you need to clear out and cut out sin in your life. First Peter was written to the different believers that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. These are believers that just felt torn because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They're put in situations where it's very difficult. People were suspicious of them because of the faith that they have, whether it is the Roman or the Jews. They hated them for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter's trying to encourage them that although they feel like strangers and aliens in where they are located, the reason why they are that way is not because of where they are in their physical location. Rather, their home is in heaven, that we have a place in heaven reserved for us by the promises of God and is sealed by the Son of God. And we need to long for that hope. And throughout First Peter, he's trying to give all of these sojourners hope. And he tells us that because we have this hope, there should be practical implications on how we need to live our life. And and in this preaching project that I'm doing for my doctoral project, I'm trying to answer this question, why does San Francisco need San Francisco Bible Church? And And the answer is simple, is that we want to win people in the city to Christ. We want people in the city to know Jesus Christ. And two, two weeks ago when I started the series, I tried to answer that question by, saying of the, by reminding us of the hope that we have in Christ. No matter how difficult life may be, whether the persecution comes from the outside or just circumstance self, we have this hope that's reserved for us in heaven. We get to long and look forward to the day where we get to be with Jesus Christ. And knowing that we have eternity in paradise, we should live in the present life in a way that is most pleasing to the Lord in hopes to win people to believe in this hope that we have as well. Last week, I tried to answer this question by saying we also need to be holy in the world. That in contrast to the world, they look at our lives and they think, you guys act strange. That we all act different. And it's because we worship a God that is foreign to them. That we're called to be holy because our God is holy. Now this week, I want to answer this same question, but in a different way. Now I want to answer it this way, that we need to be a people that desires to be Christ-like. And we need to be a people that desire to be Christ-like and it's evident in the way that we live our life in our pursuit of God's word. If we plan to win people here for Christ, people in the world need to see the church as people that actually take God's word seriously, both in terms of its desire for God's word and its desire to apply God's word in their life. If Christians are called to be sojourners in this world, then we need to hate all sin and that includes a sin that we have against one another. Because the sin that's listed here is speaking of Christians treating other Christians. And if the world were to look at us, they can tell right away if we take God's word seriously. So, our proposition is that we need to get out of the shores of sin in order to arrive at the base of Scripture. That if you want to be a faithful sojourner, you need to hunger for God's... You need to, in order to... You have a hunger for God's word, you need to put away sin in your life. So the point, first point for us what we need to get away from is sin. The first thing that we need to get away from, we to get away from sin so we get to the shore of Scripture. We need to get away from sin. Look at verse 1. Therefore. Now you remember last time, last week when I talked about the word therefore, always look at it and see its context, that it's supposed to be there. That when we, look at, when we see the word therefore, we need to ask the question, why is the therefore, therefore? So this is a response to something that Peter has already written. And I know I didn't preach in the text, but I think I want you guys to just look at verse 22, when it says, of chapter 1, it says, "...since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love for the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart." And Peter's instructing the believers here that you need to love those that are among us, that we have to be marked by a people that love one another. And Peter here in chapter 2 begins by explaining the application of that love, that if we truly have a love for the brethren, then this should not categorize us. You'll see that back in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore putting aside this is something that we need to, all of us that needs to do. It's not just saying that one person individual, but collectively as a whole, that if one person holds on to sin, it will damage the reputation of those in the church and local body, but more importantly than that, it will damage your relationship with the Lord. If you hold on to any sin, if you choose to not cast off any sin, it will impact your relationship with one another, but more importantly, it will damage your relationship with God himself. It says here, putting aside all things on, on the list of things. This is this idea of just taking off an old garment, something that is filthy, something that is dirty. You're called to take those things off and cast it aside. These are things that are supposed to be ongoing in the life of the Christian. Whenever we see some sort of sin in our life, we need to take those things off, and that is the regular part. This is a regular part of the Christian life. He wants all of us to put off sin that hinders us from being more like Christ. God here, by inspiring Peter to write this, he's very comprehensive with what he is going to talk about. He's going to list the following things, and this is something that all of us need to think about and to consider in our own lives, that we want to stop doing these things and put on Christlikeness. Notice the first one. He' so that therefore, putting aside all malice. Malice, I will define it this way, is the vicious nature which is bent on doing harm to others. Malice is a vicious nature that is bent on doing harm to others. Malice is trying to hurt someone with either your words or your deeds. It is that coworker that's trying to get another person fired by making things up about them or exaggerating their errors. It is that high schooler that tries to cause pain to another high schooler by spreading hateful lies or posting things or derogatory things on social media. It is also the church member that presumes something wrong about someone and then shares it with other people with the hope of having people turn on them. Malice destroys loving relationships and they must be stripped away, of, uh, stripped away with. It is not just something that we do to someone, but it is also, it is also our desires as well. The, that, that is what malice is. It's not loving God as we should. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 14, verse 20, Paul writes this Brethren, do not, be ch- uh, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil. This word evil here in 1 Corinthians 14 is the same word for malice. Be, be, yet in, in, in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 was telling the believers that in the way that you think about evil things, be childish. Meaning, you don't have a foresight on what the future is. Don't plan on these things. Act immature when it comes to things of evil. That's the same word that is used here when Peter is writing this, that we need to lay aside all malice. God wants none of that in our lives. Malice is an evil that we need to cut out of our lives. You need to ask yourself, when was the last time that you dealt with malice in your own heart? Because I'm sure there might be some people that rubbed you the wrong way, have said something bad, or hurt you in some way, and a part of you is wondering, I'm going to find the opportunity to get back at that person. Understand that that is something that God knows in your heart, and that is considered malicious intent. The world thinks that as long as they don't actually physically harm someone, then it is perfectly fine. But we have to see it in the way God sees it. If He looks at our hearts and he knows that we have this type of intent, and that hurting other people excites you, then that is malicious. Malice is an evil that we need to cut out of our lives. And if we were to be a church that's faithful to the Lord, then obviously one of the things that's going to happen is church discipline. And I wonder, if we were to church discipline people here in our church for maliciousness, how many of us, how many of our names will be, will be called out in the next quarterly church family meeting. It is a secret sin that inhabits our hearts that we need to cut out. We don't want to compare one sin to another and think, oh, malice, that's just one of those lesser sins. If we want any harm, if if we want anyone to go through any type of pain, that is malicious and that is a sin. Sin is not always going to begin externally. Rather, it starts internally, and then it seeps out, and it impacts those around us. And our world is filled with malicious people. Just look at social media. There's always people that are going to try to say something that's hurtful to somebody else or, or make threats. It's because our world does not think in terms of what's best for the other person. I mean, the Bible tells us that we need to love our enemies. The world, when they see someone that's opposing them, they will wish them the worst, and because they really want to hurt them. But as Christians, we're different because we're called to love our enemies, to pray for them, to not have any ill intent for them. You want to pray for those people that make life difficult for you. And in our culture, this is this is one of those sins that is acceptable to the world. They think about how uh, they think about how they can hurt other people that think differently from them. But yet as believers, that should not categorize us. We should be loving to those who've hurt us in the past. And if you have committed this sin, then you need to put it away. The command from Scripture implies that you're able to reject it. I've said this before, that any command that we see in Scripture, God will not give us that command without giving us the grace to be able to do the things that He instructs us to do. You need to... Put off maliciousness, but rather you put on compassion for those that hurt you. This is something that you cannot fake because the Lord can see into your life. The soldiers look different because they have a compassion to those that hate you. This is, does this describe you? Would you say that you are someone that is malicious? Do you have this evil intent towards those around you? Again, the world, when if they look at us and they see how we treat one another and they say, oh, you guys are just as malicious as those people outside the church, then why do I need to come into the church? Why do I need to believe in Jesus Christ? Why do I need to trust in, your, in the scriptures that you proclaim is, as the word of the living God when, it doesn't, and it's, when it's clear that in your life it's not that you don't care about it in the way that you live? We need to put off maliciousness in our life. Not only that, look at the next one. It said, all malicious and all deceit. Deceit is this word for trapping someone. It's, to, it's used in the Old Testament to describe someone that would lay a trap for an animal to fall in or even the psalmist to fall in. It's this idea of giving a false impression or deliberately trying to mislead, mislead other people. You can't have a healthy relationship with God if you are a deceptive person. Have you been harboring deceit in your own heart? It feels so natural to us to do this because we are all born in sin. Deceit, in a lot of ways, it is the first. It's the thing that led to the first sin. Right? Adam was deceived. And our old selves naturally want to do this. But now that we are redeemed, we need to put away deception in our life. We cannot deceive because if we claim to be a Christian, we... And If we claim to be followers of God and we deceive other people, what we are essentially saying is that this is what our God is like. But our God is not a God that deceives. He's not a God that lies. It is against His nature. And if we claim as believers to have a new nature in Christ Jesus, then we need to be a people that is not defined by deception. It does not reflect God's character and nature when we deceive other people. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6 for just a moment. Proverbs chapter 6. Solomon writes, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. This is what Solomon writes about the things that God hates. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devices, devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utter lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. These are the things that God hates. You need to stop harboring a heart of deception because God hates those things. Rather, you need to put those things off and put on speaking the truth. All of us, at some points in the Christian life, have encountered this question. The question is this, how are you doing spiritually? And what is our usual response? Our usual response is, it's okay, it's good. But why do we say that when we know that sometimes it's not true? Do you understand that when you are saying that you are good and in your heart, you know that you're not, that is Deception. When you're struggling with a certain type of sin and you're finding yourself falling back into the same sins over and over again, and when someone is asking you, why are you struggling, or are you struggling, and how are you doing spiritually, you, you kind of put that off. You're trying to be deceptive. Why do we do that? It's because we give this false impression that we're doing spiritually well. You don't want people to point out sin in your life. You don't want people to, to guide you and point you back to Scripture really you just have a lack of accountability this is all from a heart of deception now i'm not saying that anytime when someone one that you may not be familiar with asks you this question about how you're doing spiritually that you pour out all your heart to them i'm just saying that you just have to be honest you be wise with who you share with but how you go about it will paint a picture of, of you're trying to paint a picture of what other people see If you're struggling with something, you can be general about it. You can say, you know, you can be praying for me in this area. I'm struggling here. Just pray for me. You don't have to get into all the details. But there should be someone in your life that you're open and transparent to. Because if we're to be completely honest, all of us are struggling with some area in our spiritual life. And to try to pretend that everything is okay stems from a heart of deception. The world loves to put a spin on everything to make themselves look good or to make other people look worse. But as Christians, this should not be, for, uh, this should not be defined by our, the way that we live. If you realize that God hates deception, then don't you want to get rid of it in your own life? Speak the truth. And the reason why a lot of times we don't want to speak the truth is because of fear of man. We want to be seen a certain way. We want people to treat us a certain way. But God sees through all those lies. And when you're trying to be deceptive about who you really are, the Lord will eventually expose it. If not in this life, then for sure in all of eternity. Notice the next one. is a malice and deceit and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, this is trying to hide who you are by putting up a facade. It sounds similar to deception. And this is just presenting yourself in such a way that makes others think of you in a positive light, or in some cases, a negative light. In your own pride, you, you think of yourself as lowly and you, you express that so that people would think that you're a very humble person. In both cases, it's hypocrisy because that's not who you are in other settings. This word here is used to describe actors on the stage back then, who, you know, we have movies now that cut from different actors, and even now with AI, they could put all these different characters. But back then, one actor will have different masks to signify that he's playing a different character. It's acting one way, at one time, at one setting, and act differently at different time in a different setting. For some of us, it's acting warm and loving at church, but not at home. It's, It's putting your best behavior at home, but acting immoral in public. Or you could be acting Let's say, terrible at school or at work, but you're an angel at home. All of these are signs of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy destroys trust in the church body, and it destroys and makes you unreliable wherever you are. As Christians, this should not be that way. We should be consistent with our walk with the Lord Because we call ourselves Christians, we follow Him. And Christ doesn't have these modes where He switched from one to another. Christ is consistent in in the way that He lived on earth, and that's what we should be as well. Not only does he mention hypocrisy, but look at the next one, envy. Envy is wanting something that belongs to someone else. You, You want something that other people have. You struggle with the blessings of others, and when other people are happy, you are miserable, and when others are miserable you are happy and that's because they have something that they that you want envy is seen in enjoying in other people's misery or wishing that that misery be upon them because of something that you want from them this means that that envy has a multiple ways of applying the application of envy is 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 massive jerry bridges in his book respectable sin when he's talking about envy he describes envy as this is, we're all usually envious of people in areas that we care about. That's the things that we love. Some that we value, some that other people have that we value, that's where we're most envious. We only envy people on areas that we care about because naturally we don't envy things on areas that we don't care about. For example, if you have a very nice car, if a person that has a nice car, you won't really care so much about it. But if, they ha- if that person has a job that you want, and you think, oh man, I really wish I have that job. It doesn't matter what kind of nice car you have or whatever vehicle you drive. If you envy someone's position in a workplace, that is something you'll want because you have an envious heart. For some of you, you might be married and you may not envy single people, but you look at how those single people live and you think to yourself, wow, I wish I had so much money or a disposable income for me to buy this shoe or buy that material or buy that phone or buy that tech. But because I'm married, I don't have the resources to buy those things. You're envying the lifestyle of a single person because of the things that they own. Maybe for some of you, you have all the money in the world, but you envy other people's kids because of how they act, and you compare it to yours. How come my kids are not obedient? How come my kids are not so likable? How come my kids are not intelligent? You envy something that someone else have. Whatever it may be, anything that someone else have that you don't have, that you want for yourself, that is something that, is, that you need to get out of in your life. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, it describes that those who are envious will not inherit the kingdom of God. That envy can keep you from heaven. Envy leads to other sin. Envy is the sin that just keeps on sinning. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, when Saul, Saul was envious of David because David kept getting praised by those around them. Uh, they said, Saul, you killed thousands of, of, of the Philistines, and, but David killed 10,000 more. And out of this envious heart, you know that Saul was throwing his spear at David, he was throwing his spear even at his own son. In fact, some of the Psalms were written because Saul was pursuing him. He wanted to kill him because of his success. He envied David's accomplishments. And when you even think about the life of our Savior, Mark chapter 15, this sheds a little bit of light on why the religious people hated Jesus so much. Mark chapter 15, verse 10. Jesus was about to get killed, and it's in Mark chapter 15, verse 10, that for he was aware that the chief priests had handed him Jesus over because of envy, Jesus was before Pilate and they asked him, Should we kill him? And they wanted to kill him. And the reason why was because the religious leader were envious of Jesus. They saw his miracles. They saw how of the gathering of people that went to him that wanted to learn from Jesus, they became envious of that and the result that they wanted to put Jesus on the cross. Envy is a sin that keeps on sinning. And if you have that in your own heart, inevitably it will t- be taken out in some way. It will manifest itself in hurting other people. And you need to cut that out of your life if you want to be a faithful sojourner for the Lord. Look at the last one in this category, slander and all slander. This word slander is a... Is, it, it's. In the, in the Greek, it's an onomatopoeia. It's a word, it means, it's, how you say it, it's katalias. It sounds like a whisper. In the Old Testament term, is bearing false witness. It's intent to hurt someone by, um, um, in, by destroying their reputation. It's this desire to hurt them. And what is tricky about slander is that oftentimes we think of slander as saying something that's not true about someone. But in reality, you can actually slander someone by saying something that is true about someone. It's a desire to hurt someone with your words. And James chapter 3 reminds us that the reason why we need to control our tongue and our speech is because when we speak against one another, we're speaking against someone that's made in the image of God. Slander is so sinister because it is a secret sin that we choose not to see in our own lives. But God sees it. God sees it when we're trying, when the way that we speak about other people it's not just offensive to those that hear it, but it offends God because that person that we're slandering against is made in the image of God. This list is a verse, this, the list in this verse will hinder your walk with Christ. It will fracture your friendships and your relationships with one another. It keeps us from living the life that Christ wants us to live. It hinders us with our relationship with the Lord. And this is why we need to stop doing this. And if we've wronged someone in any of these areas in their lives, we need to understand that first and foremost, we've wronged God first. You need to make it right. The difference between a believer and a non-believer is not that the believers do not do these things here that's listed. But rather, the difference is that believers are willing to fix the things when they commit something wrong. They're, ask, they're willing to seek and ask for forgiveness. They try to make things right with one another. And as sojourners in this city, in this church, this must not characterize any of us. And it's easy when we look at these this list of sins, we think, well, everyone struggles with it, and it's just a normal life. It's just, that's just how life is. And although that might be true, that it is something that we all struggle with, it's not an excuse for us not to repent. Just imagine if we put the, any other sin in that category. Well, it's just murder. It's just something everybody does in the world. It's just adultery. It's just something that everybody else does. Sin is sin, no matter how big or small the sin is. And Sometimes believers choose to continue to live this way and they don't realize that they're causing pain in the church. In fact, there are some people that leave the church because of our sin. And I'm not talking about You know, big sins, quote unquote, like things like scams or sexual sins or scandals, although that is true, people do leave the church for those reasons. I'm talking about how some people, because they exhibit these characteristics, not only leave the church, but leave the faith altogether. What is the most common thing that you hear from non believers about why they do not want to be a Christian? Is that Christians are hypocrites. They're hypocrites. They see the life of the people in the church. They act exactly like them. They claim to be like followers of Jesus Christ. They realize that they don't actually try at all to live like Christ, and it repels them to even once not even be part of the church, but be all the faith altogether. And this should not characterize any of us. If we want to represent Christ well in the city, then the way that we show fervent love to one another must be putting aside all of these sins as listed in verse 1. Go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 24, for just a little bit. Now, I want us to think about the importance of reconciling our relationships with one another. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, this is the the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins the sermon by saying, Blessed are those who, who, who want to follow the Lord. If you want to be blessed by the Lord, he lists all of these different areas in which we can make it to heaven. And if we claim to want happy lives, this is what life is supposed to be like. But yet in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says this, "'You have heard that the ancients were told, "'You shall not commit murder, "'and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the courts. "'But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother "'shall be guilty before the courts. "'And whoever says to his brother, "'You good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court.'" And whoever said, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offerings at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Jesus here is giving a warning. He's telling the people that if you have a conflict with someone, don't go to church. Don't go to church. I know some of you are here because you like to be here and that's true and we welcome you here but if there is someone in your mind that you know that you have a problem with, don't go to church. We as elders here don't care about attendance. What we care about is your spiritual life and if there is someone here that you could think of that you're struggling with, don't go to church. Don't show up. Reconcile that person first before you come back and worship and give an offering to the Lord. Hear the word Preach. In fact, we have communion later. And one of the things that we do on communion is we tell people to check their own hearts to see if there is anything that's going on that is not right before the Lord. And when you're harboring some sort of bitterness or anger or anything against a brother or sister in the faith and that you haven't reconciled those relationships with, don't take communion. Don't go to church. Fix those things first before you come back and worship. The most the most Christ-like thing that you can do is willing to reconcile to those that has hurt you and who, in your minds, were enemies at one point. Right? All of us, at one point, we were enemies of God, but by God's grace, He rescued us. He reconciled Himself to us through the life and death of Jesus Christ. And if we want to model our life after Jesus, this is what we need to do, that we're willing to, to, to reconcile with those that hate us. Now, I understand then you can be the party that is hurt and you want to reconcile with someone and that person doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Then that's between them and the Lord. You, on the other hand, need to be faithful. And if you're faithful in trying to restore those relationships and it just doesn't work out, then that's the Romans chapter 12, where it said, if possible, be at peace with all men. But what I fear for us here at SFBC is that we don't even try That when we think about those relationships that are strained, that we do nothing about it. We let it fester, and those sins that we fester will destroy the church from within. It's sin like this that causes individuals to not desire God in their own personal life. And this is something that you need to cut out in your own life. You are violating your witness for Christ when you are continuing to hold on to any sin, but these sins in particular. In First Peter, you cannot say that you love Christ yet take verbal shots at the Bride of Christ. If you wronged anyone in the church, you need to go and make those things right. Because if you have, if you have if you wronged anyone in the church right now, you're currently at you're currently wrong with God as well. Make certain. That together as a church body, that we don't hold anything against one another. This is something you need to do as soon as possible. And that means for some of you later in a few minutes when we take communion is to not take the elements. You know that there is someone that you need to reconcile with. Don't take the elements. There is no shame in in not taking the elements now because there's greater shame in taking the elements and deceiving yourself and then seeing God and then having to give account to the Lord and why you did not do what he instructs you to do in Scripture. We need to get out of the shores of sin in order to arrive at the base of Scripture. And if you want to be a faithful soldier in this life, you need to put aside all the sin that's in your life. If you want to be a faithful soldier, put off sin. Now, which leads to our second point, that we need to get out of the shores of sin to arrive at the base of Scripture. Our second point, where do we need to run to? Is Scripture. Where do we need to get to? Is Scripture. Look at verse 2 like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. He, Peter here is giving this illustration for babies that long for milk. And when you see this, don't think in terms of like this is something only immature believers need. No, this is talk. let's not talk about maturity and immaturity here. It's speaking about just the desire for God's word. That, 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 that longing to, to, to get the milk That babies want. The baby would desire every meal as if it's the last meal. And we see it in our church. Whenever you hear a baby cry, oftentimes it's because they want milk. And when they cry, there's this desperate cry as if they've never been fed before. That's the type of yearning that we need to have for God's word, which is a strange command because Peter is telling you to have a a type of emotion for God. And one of the things that my wife and I are trying to do and teaching our kids, I'm sure some of you parents as well, is not just to get them to obey us. Because they can obey it, but they're grumbling and complaining as they clean up their toys or if they go brush their teeth. What we try to tell them is that you need to obey with a happy heart. That you need to obey with a happy heart. And that is exactly what God expects of us. Because if you do anything for the Lord with a disgruntled heart, then you're no different from a Pharisee. But what God wants you to have is a genuine desire for him and desire for his word, and oftentimes again, it could be the reason why you don't have that, those desires is because of the sins that you didn't put off in verse one. But sometimes the reason why we don't desire God's word is, is because we don't understand the importance and the necessity of God's word. Is it here the, the the pure milk of the word? This is something that's pure and clean, is uncontaminated. God's word is not is in, not infested with errors. It's, in Psalm 19, it describes that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's because of the, the nourishing elements that comes with the milk that, this, that babies want. it. They have it once, they want to keep having it. They keep longing for it because they know the blessings and the benefits of consuming this milk. We need to know that every single word of God is pure and perfect, and there's no mistake in it. God's word is more valuable in the the Old Testament scribes, more valuable than gold, even fine gold. If I was to make a wager with you, maybe not me, maybe someone else. If someone else made a wager with you and said, I will give you every single gold there is in the world, but you cannot read scripture ever again, how many of you will take up on that wager? How would you answer this? Now, I'm aware that the biblical answers say, of course I will not take the gold. I I love God's word. That is the, the Sunday school answer. But sadly for some of you, you're going to take the gold because you aren't reading Scripture to begin with. You have no desire for God's Word, so you look at the things of the world, and that is the thing that you crave the most. God's Word must be viewed as a treasure to us, and it must be more valuable than anything that this Word has to offer because it gives us eternal life. We must long and crave for God's Word just as much as a baby longs for milk. If you want to be like that, then you need to be, you need to stop craving other things in the world. Stop craving entertainment. Stop craving relationships. Stop craving comfort. Stop craving material things. Stop craving a vacation. Stop craving promotion at work. But rather, start craving God more so that you have a greater desire for Him. How do I know what I'm craving the most? Think about how you use your time Think about how you use your resources. Compare that to God's Word. How much are you reading God's Word on on a daily and a weekly basis? Now, it's up to you to determine how much is enough. But if we were to be completely honest, all of us do not crave God's Word as much as we should. We don't spend as much time in God's Word as much as we should. And this is something that all of us need to work on. The mature believer to the immature believer, all of us need to crave God's Word. Do you want to mature in the faith? And if you want to mature in the faith, then you must crave God's word. Look at verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, remember what Christ has done for you. This word if can be translated as since. The natural result of tasting and, 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 and savoring the kindness of God is that we want more of God. If you have experienced the kindness of the Lord in your life then the natural result is that you want him even more. It should be easy for us to long for this because, because that's what we want. It, it tastes good to us. That's why babies keep longing for milk. It tastes good. It brings them nourishment. It gives them strength, and that's why they keep longing for it. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. This is Romans chapter 2, verse 4. The kindness of the Lord not only leads you to salvation, but it leads you to a life of obedience. Think about every area of your life, and you can see God's fingerprints in it. And every time you see your life, you think you should know and should bring to mind how kind God is towards you. The reason why you have that bookshelf in your room is because of God's kindness towards you. The reason why you have that car to drive is because of God's kindness towards you. The reason why you can go from point A to point B in your day is because of God's kindness towards you. It is this experience of God's kindness that you want to know Him more. And we as Christians, we understand the greatest act of kindness by the Lord is that He died for our sins. That he came into the world as a perfect man, lived that perfect life that we failed to live, never having slandered once, never having to be envious or a hypocrite or have any de- or deception or any malice. He lived that perfect life for us and he died the death so that we can be made right with God. And this is why we, that is the kindness that leads us to repentance, it causes us to grow in Christ's likeness. It's that experience of God's kindness that makes us want to know God even more. Some of you, there are areas in your life where it's, it's perfectly fine to be mediocre in. Some of you may enjoy running, but you're not going to try to run to win Olympic gold. So in your mind, what you consider as running or sprinting, maybe someone else would think that's just walking. And you don't care. You don't care about running a four-minute mile because that's not something that matters to you. When you think about lifting, if you want to lift, uh, you might lift like you You may not want to be some Olympian lifter. You might not want to try to like, lift things like cars or whatever because you see it on TV and it doesn't really matter to you, so you're content with your 10-pound dumbbells. And that's perfectly fine because those things don't matter. But as a Christian, being a more mature Christian should be something that matters most to us. The sojourners need to take sanctification seriously. By the world standard, your life should look completely radical to them. In their eyes, it's completely radical that you're willing to wake up and go to church every Sunday. It's radical for them to see how you're willing to leave work on time so that you get to Bible study early. It's radical for them to to think that you're willing to not have sex before marriage. It's radical for them when they see that you're actually trying to do what the Bible tells you to do. And as sojourners, we will look weird and strange because God is weird and strange to them. And for some of you, the reason why your family and friends and neighbors and coworkers, the people that you're praying for to come to Saving Faith, the reason why they don't take you seriously is because you don't take it seriously. You don't take uh, being Christ-like seriously. You don't take God's word seriously, and the world, the world knows you by your own, own fruits. They see that if you don't take God's word seriously, if you don't repent, if you don't trust in God's word, then why should I trust in God's word? Because a mediocre Christian is a useless Christian. If you want to win your friends, if you want to win your neighbors, be radical for the Lord. Be obedient to him in every area of your life. Some of you may be a useless Christian. And if that is you, you need to ask God for forgiveness and God will give you the grace to be able to represent him again. Do you desire to grow in the faith? And if you don't, why not? If you're not interested in growing in christ likeness, I wonder if you have truly experienced the kindness of the Lord. Maybe another way of asking is, do you even know Jesus? Why do our church have so many different fellowship groups? It's because we want people in different life stages and different ages to know our God, to understand and learn more about the kindness of the Lord. Why do we have groups like Anchored and Adorned and Kit Kat, Focus, Life, Join Airs, Gig, Fileo, the Men's Wednesday Bible Study or the Wednesday Bible Study here, Forge, Heart to Heart, T2. Why do we have all of these different groups? Is because we want to remind and encourage each other the kindness of the Lord. Yes, we have other ministries that go on that are application of the things that we know about God. Why do we have evangelism? It's because of those reasons. Why do we have counseling? It's because it's an application of the things that we know. So the question you need to ask yourself if you're here, why aren't you plugged into the church? Is it possible that you have no desire to be part of any group in the church because you you haven't truly experienced the kindness of the Lord? You need to know the Word in order to grow. It must be your spiritual desire to be more like Christ. You want the Word of God to manifest in your life, and all of us need to work at committing ourselves to the Word of God. Operation Dynamo was a success, Uh, largely a success. There were soldiers that died, but a lot of them were rescued, uh, and they were able to go back to base and regroup and recharge, and they were able to fight another day. In fact, most of them did go back and fight. And as a result of that, the Nazi Germany were not able to be successful in their campaign. The Christian war is a cycle in a sense that when we understand that we need to put off certain sins, we put those things off, then we desire God's word. Then God's word exposes areas in life where there are other areas of sin, then we put off those sins and we have a greater desire for God's Word. And the result of that is that we find true joy and peace in the Lord because it's only faithful obedience to Him that gives us joy. Happiness only comes from holiness. And oftentimes the reason why we don't have that desire is because of the sin that entangles us. But yet the Bible informs us that there is a way to escape no matter what sin, how great it seems, there is a way to escape those sins. And as we escape the sin and we pursue Christ's word, then we'll know more about who Christ is and the kindness of the Lord that makes us want to put off more sin. And as the world sees our lives, they see these people are putting off their sin and they desire God's word and they keep doing that. That's just a life pattern. It makes them wonder, why do they do this? Why are Christians willing to do this? It's because we understand the kindness of the Lord. We hope that in the way that we live, before a watching world, that the people come to saving faith because we take God's word seriously. Once you win this battleground of sin, you get recharged by God's word and you go back to another battleground. And we keep doing this and we keep putting off sin and we're looking more and more like Christ. And that war isn't over until we reach our glorified state. Whether it means Christ's return or we die, we keep fighting because we love the Lord. John Bunyan said it this way, either this book, meaning the Bible, is keeping me from sin, or sin is keeping me from the Bible. And I hope for all of us today that we flee from sin and that we run towards the base of Scripture so that we can be a light to the world and win other people to saving faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. I pray for our church, that if there is anyone in our church that is struggling with being malice or being deceptive or a hypocrite or envious or slanderous, that we put all of those things aside because of how kind you are and how loving you are. Lord, we desire to desire you give us the grace to be able to have that Help us put off the sin that entangles us, that ensnares us, that traps us, so that we can love you more and be, more, be made more like your son. Be with us this week as we go about our days that we would faithfully represent you. We thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.